Welcome to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the award-winning radio show and podcast featuring your physician host, Dr. Chris Stroud. And Dr. Andrew Mullally, where we and our guests discuss relevant and health-related topics from an authentically Catholic perspective. Today, our guests will be heard across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network, and joining us will be pediatrician Dr. Gwyneth Spader. She's going to talk about the traditional or usual cycle of well baby visits. Now, astute listeners will recognize that uh, Dr. Spader's been with us a couple of times before, but when you have a great expert, you keep calling on them over and over. That's right. And I feel like well child checks and well baby visits are one of the most misunderstood things. A lot of people are like, if they're well, why am I bringing them to the doctor? <laughs> and this well, is this is your life. This is. This, this is. <laughs> I, I do an awful lot of this. I'm in family medicine, but most of my life is caring for kids. That's the world I live in at home and at work. And uh, it's, it's going to be great to talk to Dr. Spader because hopefully we can kind of walk through through why these are important and why they're high value. They're well, not just what happens a touch at base various thing. visits and, and why it happens at those visits. Um, and, and it's interesting. I think this will come up in our discussions, but the difference in the questions that maybe a mom, first time mom asks versus a sixth or seventh time mom, a lot, a lot of difference there and a lot of different kind of concerns. Yeah, that's for sure. This, Whenever you have a baby, it is a journey. <laughs> and it doesn't matter how many babies I've had, at least. It's still a journey. <laughs> they all find ways to, to make themselves unique and, and challenging and a blessing in their own way. So uh, I'm excited to talk about this with her. Well, before we get to Dr. Spader, we better get to this episode's medical trivia question. That's right. So... The medical trivia question is going to be about vaccines. Of course. And so, uh, you know, vaccines, that's another show we've done. We may touch on again. But it's a big part of the well-child schedule. So the question is a simple one. What was the first vaccine ever invented? Mm -hmm. And if you are a long-term listener, you might have heard a similar trivia question in the past. Do you remember the answer? <laughs> that's the question. So we'll be back here on Dr. Doctor with the interview after the break. Welcome back to Dr. Doctor, and welcome our guest, Dr. Gwyneth Spader. Now, I could spend the rest of the episode reading uh, the background and sharing it with you on uh, on Dr. Spader, but just a couple of things. She attended the University of Dallas. That's actually where I met her the first time. Got a degree in political philosophy. That's very common for physicians. <laughs> um, she's done a little bit of everything, including in attending the Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. She's a board-certified pediatrician, and she's practiced in a lot of environments right now. She lives in Wake Forest, North Carolina, with her husband and three children. So, Gwyneth, welcome back to Dr. Doctor. Thank you so much. I'm delighted to be here. Well, we're glad that you're glad uh, because you've always been an excellent guest, and we keep going to our best our guest, best guests over and over. So thanks again for giving us some of your time and expertise on this important topic. My so, pleasure, my pleasure. So, you know, I think maybe to start our discussion, this whole idea of, um, you know, well baby visits, you know, I have the baby uh, and hopefully everything is unremarkable and I have the privilege of handing a couple uh, a beautiful, healthy baby and I say, now see your pediatrics provider in the next couple of weeks. And sometimes they look at me and think, why on earth should I do that? As long as everything is okay, why do I need to go see somebody about my baby? So what's really the purpose in a general global sense uh, of the well baby, well child visits? Yeah, I think it's a totally reasonable question. I would say, very generally speaking, the purpose of well child visits is to check in on a child's growth and development at defined intervals where significant change is expected. Hmm. So the younger the baby is, the faster they're growing, the faster they're developing, the more frequently we're going to want to lay eyes on them. And this allows us both to provide some guidance to parents who undoubtedly will have questions as, as time goes by, um, and to also intervene quickly if something is not going as expected. Yeah, you know, in those early weeks, if you had to say, based on your experience, What's the most common concern that parents express? Feeding and crying. Oh. Mm. <laughs> Feeding yeah. and crying. So, um, I mean, it's, it's what a baby does, right? They <laughs> eat, they sleep, and they cry. Um, so well, I should probably too. add sleep to that list also. <laughs> um, no, in the, in the very, very early days, particularly if it's a, a, a parent's first child, 
Um, I find that most of the stress is around making sure the baby's getting enough to eat, whether mom is breastfeeding or whether they're um, bottle feeding. Um, you know, babies don't talk to us. They can't raise their hand and say, we're full. Um, so there can be um, concern. Am I feeding too much? Am I not feeding enough? Why is the baby crying? Why won't my baby sleep? Those are probably the top three in the first few weeks. And, you know, Gwyneth, I don't know if you see this, but a question people will ask me sometimes is, you know, how to even pick a doctor for mm. the baby. Um, I've had folks who want to do doctor interviews before the baby's even born. <laughs> Makes it challenging for billing and coding. Uh, what, what do you tell people? How do, how do they pick a doctor for their baby? Yeah, I think that's a really important question. Um, and I've been at practices where they did offer kind of meet the doctor nights for expectant parents and people could come in um, and, and chat with the doctors and, and kind of get a sense for personality and, and background. I fear that as more and more of these small private independent practices are getting swallowed by large academic or for-profit centers, um, that's fading away because, as you say, there's there's no way to bill for that. Um, but practically speaking, in this day and age, I would talk to friends mm. um, and get a short list. I would <laughs> consult your insurance because that drives um, a lot of the decision making. Unfortunately, you want to be with a provider who's covered by your insurance or it's going to get very expensive quickly, unfortunately. Um, and then, you know, maybe once you had one or two names, peruse the website, um, see if the clinic hours are going to work well with your family's schedule, if you are comfortable with um, the type of providers that are available in that office, whether that be physicians, nurse practitioners, physician assistants. Um, I would ask questions. Usually this information can be found on the website. How are after hours and weekend concerns uh -huh. addressed? Are there clinic hours on the weekends or in the evening? Um, and then if you have specific concerns or questions about the type of care you, you want your child to receive, I think it's very reasonable to call up that practice and just ask if, if Dr. So-and-so is available for a short phone conversation mm -hmm. and explain that you're an expectant parent who's um, looking for a doctor. Yeah, I mean, you you could envision. I think their response to that simple question might might shed a lot of light on what kind of relationship you would have. I mean, somebody that's yeah, willing. Yeah, I think it's true. I, mean, I, I would be happy to take that phone call. Yeah. Um, and uh, you know, I I find you know the longer I'm in practice, I get my new patients just from word of mouth in the community. But when you're first starting out as a practicing um, physician, it does take some kind of foot work and, and, you know, uh, just getting out and meeting people and getting your name out in the community for, um, for those patients to start coming yeah. in. It seems to me from talking to patients and from being a parent, although it's been a long time since we had an infant, um, you know, especially the first time, mom, there's going to be so many things, usually skin things, it seems, where she just wants to call and say, my baby's got bumps. Is this normal? Do I come in or do I not come in? And I tell patients, you know, the answer to that question is critical because you don't want to be made to feel stupid for asking the question, but you also don't want to be told to come in with every single question right. or you're just going to need an RV in the, in the pediatrician's parking lot. Uh, but finding that happy medium that matches your personality, that's the chemistry I think you're, you're looking for because that's what we all yeah. want to know. Is this normal? Is it not normal? Is it not normal? Yeah, I mean, I, I really think it boils down to that. And um, this is somewhere where modern technology actually really does help us in that patients now in most places have the ability to send me a picture nice. um, of rashes and other oddities that come up. <laughs> um, and either myself or my triage nurse can say, yes, that needs a visit. No, the doctor will send you a message about this later. But yeah, it is all about that correct balance. And um I really enjoy working with new parents uh, because 
it just, um, they're just like sponges. They just want all the information that you can offer to them. And they're super receptive to it. Um, and they're so in love with their babies. It's just a lot of fun to watch. <laughs> That's funny. I had a flashback listening to that when, when, when I remember distinctly bringing our first child home. And the next day, sort of my wife and I looking at each other thinking, what do we do now? I mean, there's there's yeah. probably something we're supposed to do, <laughs> but neither of us have an idea of what we're supposed to do. We better call somebody that knows a lot about babies and ask them. Um, yeah. So yeah. maybe oh, I vividly remember my <laughs> oldest home, and I was a pediatric intern at the time, so I had some training. And I remember sitting him down in his little bassinet in the um, living room. He was asleep. And I burst into tears because I was like, I don't know what I'm supposed to do next. I have no idea what I'm supposed to do next. Fortunately, my husband was a little bit more emotionally stable at the time. He was like, I don't actually think we have to do anything right now. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you you have this uh, you have this little darling, and um, then two weeks later, you're supposed to start this series of visits. So maybe if you could walk us through sort of that typical schedule. What is it and what's typically going to happen uh, at those visits? Sure, sure. So, um, you know, there's a little variability from practice to practice, but uh -huh. pretty standard schedule, I would say, in this day and age is that I will see a newborn actually within two to three days of discharge from the hospital for a quick um, weight check and Billy Rubin or jaundice check. Um, and that's a great time for parents to get all those initial questions, all the things that came flooding into their head when they walked into their house the first time with this baby and thought, oh, now what? Um, so that's usually a fun visit. And then if things are going reasonably well, then I see them again at two weeks of age, um, sometimes again at one month of age. Then from there, it's two months, four months, six months nine months, 12 months, 15 months, 18 months, and 24 months. Um, That's so a busy two quite years. A few visits in those two years. Um, and at each visit, we're looking for appropriate growth, and we measure um, weight, length, and head circumference. Um, and then we're looking for appropriate development, physical, verbal, and social-emotional skills. Um, we're obviously there to answer any questions the parents have at those visits, any concerns that have come up. And then we try very hard to provide what we call anticipatory guidance. So anything that we anticipate coming up for the parents in the next chunk of time before we see them again, um, you know, uh, to try and answer questions before they even arise in the parents' heads. I, I think a lot of times at least a, a question I've heard patients ask is, you know, if the baby's just normal, why am I doing this? Mm. Well, how do you answer that question? Yeah, I think um, it's, I would say, because normal can become abnormal very quickly. Mm. Um, and parents are supposed to be parents, not doctors. It's harder for those of us who actually are doctors to um, <laughs> remember that. But, you know, in the general population, you're a parent, you're not a physician. And um, so I think that there's a couple of reasons why even if a child is completely developmentally normal, growing normal, healthy, thriving, I still want to see that kid in my office on that schedule. One is um, vaccines, which I think we're going to talk about a little bit later in the show. Um, two is uh, that it's very hard, I think, when you see a child every day to notice aberrations in growth patterns. Oh. So um, your kid may look completely normal to you over the span of two, four, six months because that's what you see every day. But when we actually plot that child on, a, on the standard growth curves, we can see, um, oh, your weight is really not proceeding as we expect oh, you're not growing as tall as we would expect. More concerning in the younger years, your head is either smaller or bigger than we might expect. Mm. Um, and those can indicate diagnoses that, generally speaking, do better the earlier we intervene. But, you know, the other thing is that there are, you don't know what you don't know. And I actually, in preparation for this, um, for this podcast, uh, 
asked a group of fellow pediatricians if they could remember diagnoses that they had picked up <laughs> during well-child visits that parents had not raised concerns or questions about, but were just apparent from either the physical exam or one of the screens that were, were done in the office. And the list was extraordinary. <laughs> um, so I won't read the whole thing, but it included <laughs> genetic disorders, several different kinds of cancers, wow. um, eye disorders, GI disorders, um, disorders of puberty, either precocious puberty, developing puberty too early or delayed puberty, mm. thyroid disease, scoliosis, um, cardiac disease, new murmurs, pulmonary hypertension, new onset hypertension in adolescents, um, hematologic disorders, anemia. We see this actually a lot in our milk guzzling toddlers um, <laughs> because too much milk can actually impair iron absorption. So if you have kids that are downing a gallon of milk a day, they will look normal to their parents, but they can actually be quite sick. Um, and then, of course, psych disorders in the, in the older population. Mm -hmm. um, numerous people commented about um, tweens and teens who were cutting and their parents had no idea because they kept their, their arms and their legs covered. Oh, sure. Wow. Um, so across the span of, of the ages that we see, I think there, there are, there's something different about the pediatrician's eyes than the parent's eyes. And that's why we like to have these kids come in regularly. Um, and I, I think another way of getting at that as well is maybe how often, if you kind of averaged the well child checks, how often would you find something that you gave kind of changing guidance on? You know, there was a, a pathway going forward, whether it be growth, dietary, or some disease process, or, you know, milestone-wise and, and delays in that regard. How often do you say, I think we should focus on here more, and it's not really been on the radar of the parents? Um, yeah, that's an interesting question. For myself, I would say... Easily 50% of my well-child visits, we make an intervention by the end of the visit. Um, and I would say probably 30 to 35% of those are in response to concerns that either the parent or the patient themselves already had, but, you know, hadn't brought to attention before now. But probably 15 to 20% is, is stuff that I feel either deserves further evaluation and intervention. Um some kind of redirection, however large or small that might be. Wow, that's fascinating. I mean, a little more evidence that it's worthwhile. It's, it's an efficient use of time because the probability of changing directions is is pretty high. You it's know, decent, you, yeah. You know, it became very clear to me on about the first or second hour of my peds rotation in medical school that this was not the specialty for me. And <laughs> it was all about milestones. And for whatever reason, I was so intimidated by milestones as a medical student. But you know what are the what are the most important milestones that you think of in those early uh, first couple of year visits? Uh, what and what do they mean? Yeah, I, it is rather daunting to have to memorize all those milestones before you're a parent yourself. I think uh, they do seem kind of random and arbitrary. But um, in the first couple of years, we're focusing primarily in three general categories. So physical milestones, both gross motor and fine motor skills, um, language development, both what we call receptive language, so the ability to understand and process what you're hearing, and then re uh, expressive language to speak to others. And then kind of this grab bag category of problem solving, social, emotional skills, um, which have much more to do with kind of um, executive function type uh, development. So most of the children that I encounter, well, the majority of the children that I encounter are developing perfectly normally. Sure. Um, but, and then of those who are not, most of them have what we call isolated milestone delays. So either speech or some physical component. Um, and those respond really, really well to early intervention. So speech therapy, physical therapy, occupational therapy. Now, when you say isolated, you mean yeah. not associated with, with some other syndrome or some other anomaly. Right. They simply right. aren't so speaking the on time. the only thing wrong with, you know, 
this patient sure. is that their expressive language is behind their peers. Okay. I would call that an isolated delay. But the kids where you start to say, well, we're a little behind in this category and we're a little behind in that category and I'm not so sure we're meeting it in this category. Those are the children that really deserve a more comprehensive, thorough evaluation for some kind of syndrome or neurodevelopmental disorder. Mm-hmm. And that's where we rely heavily on our behavioral and developmental pediatrician friends. Um, so. Wow. What, what kind of advice, I guess, especially related to milestones, would you give parents for in-between visits? I, I remember thinking with, with my first child that we were helping them roll over and teaching them how to do that. And then later so I was like... So you could like, tell your doctor, he's rolling over. Yeah, yeah, it was like a grade for school. And then, you know, subsequent kids were like, I hope he's a little slow with that. I like him yeah, being where exactly. I left him, yeah. you know. What, what kind of advice would you give parents for that? I think the number one thing I want to express to parents is that your job is to love and enjoy your children. Mm. And our job is to monitor, you know, these checklists. Uh, Babies and toddlers in loving, supportive environments are going to meet these milestones, Uh. um, regardless of, you know, whether you're sitting there kind of coaching them. Now, you know, there's nuance to this. You know, we'll talk a lot with... um, young family, uh, parents who have very young children, newborns, infants, about the importance of, say, tummy time. Um, Since the advent of the Back to Sleep campaign, which I think was in the the 90s, um, and our insistence, because of good data, that babies be put to sleep on their backs, um, they don't have as much opportunity to develop the um, core, trunk, and neck strength to lift their heads up unless they spend time on their tummies Mm -hmm. during the day. So babies who are getting more tummy time generally are more advanced in those gross motor skills in the early months of picking their heads up, pushing up off their, uh, pushing up off their arms. They will roll earlier. Um, so there is some parental involvement, but it's not a test that you have to pass. It's more just if you are playful with your child and interactive with your child, um, they are going to find these skills. Well. Gwyneth, that's a perfect time for us to take a break. We'll be right back more with Dr. Gwyneth Spader on Dr. Doctor. And we are back on Dr. Doctor with Dr. Gwyneth Spader. And we're talking about well-child checks today. And especially, we were just talking about the milestones. So, Gwyneth, tell us a little bit. There, there's been, I don't want to say controversy, but the milestones were recently changed. And, and some of our listeners might notice if they're looking at older older milestones, they don't match the ones that they're being asked at well visits currently. What's the deal with this? Some some folks have surmised that it's because everyone's delayed because of the COVID shutdowns. Is that accurate? Um, yeah, I think it's a great question. The short answer is um, no, it's, it's not because of COVID or the shutdowns. Um, so I, if you look at the paper that was published with these new guidelines that came out last summer, um, and it did cause a little bit of a, a, a ruffle of some feathers, um, it's a summary paper looking at, um, gosh, 20, 30, 50 uh, papers in total that looked at the development of the, the normal, typical development of children over decades. Um, And the latest of those papers that they were considering when they reevaluated the the guideline schedule uh, was published in 2019. So this is all pre-COVID. The fact that it came out in 2022 really is just a commentary on how long it takes to evaluate that amount of data, um, come to a consensus and get it published (laughs) Um, so, but the data, the actual raw data that they were using is all data from pre-COVID. So, um, for those of us who do this day in and day out, I think this was much less, um, of a change than it was maybe portrayed, uh, in the media or amongst some parent groups. Um, really it was just a question of what I call tightening up the guidelines so that there was less ambiguity over who should be referred for further evaluation and who can fall under what we used to call watchful waiting. 
Um, so it was a real attempt to, to not have so much overlap between the various well-child visits and the, the guidelines that we were checking at each of those visits, and to really um, try and mathematically confirm that the goal we are shooting for is that 75% of children will meet these milestones at the point at which we are asking about them. So I think that's another important point to, for parents to understand is if your child is not meeting a particular milestone, it doesn't necessarily mean that there's a problem. It just alerts us that they are in this 25% of their peer group um, that has not yet met that milestone. And then based on the sum total of their health and development, um, we can make a decision on, on what the best next course of action is. Yeah, what what would be a, uh, I think that that makes sense to me. You know, what what would you do when someone's not meeting a milestone? I guess maybe walk through that. Sure. So I would say the one I most commonly encounter in the young toddler group is speech, um which is certainly understandable as it's such a critical part of of a child's development. Um, I think the first thing that's really important to understand is that there's a fairly wide range of normal for all of these milestones. Um, so many babies and toddlers who belong to your friends, your sister, your neighbors, will hit these milestones before your child does. That doesn't mean that there is anything wrong or that your child is delayed. So the, the, the milestones that your pediatrician is asking for are kind of the outer envelope of that 75%. Um, and even if your sister's daughter said her first word at 10 months and your daughter didn't say her first word till 13 months, that's all within the realm of normal. But if we're getting to 14, 15 months with no um, specific expressive words, words that your child is saying, then that's a flag that maybe they really could use a little bit of help in understanding how we use language and how to form those words. Um, and so that's a child where I would really hone in on, okay, is this just a question of expressive speech, the ability to use words correctly? Or am I also concerned about receptive speech, how a child is understanding the language that's spoken to them? We all develop receptive speech much earlier than expressive speech. Any of us who have ever tried to learn a new language later in life understand that it's much easier to understand what's being said to you than to come up with the words yourself in a new language. And the same is true for babies or toddlers. So a kid who has a baby, a toddler who has normal receptive language, but just isn't using many words, is a child that I am not at all worried about their long-term prognosis or development, but really likely would um, benefit from speech therapy, which is usually done once a week in a local um, therapy office. And what I explained to parents is they don't have to do it. They really don't. If we, if we um, are confident that their hearing is normal, and that their receptive language is on track, and the parents just want to watch and wait, I have no problem with that. But I have found both personally, as my middle child ended up in speech therapy for a while, um, and professionally, the frustration of young toddlers who can't express what they want, and the frustration of parents of young toddlers who can't understand what their child wants goes down dramatically um, if we get speech therapy involved um, and get those words flowing, perhaps introduce some toddler sign language and just get communication moving a little bit further down the road. Yeah, it kind of makes me think of, you know, even the, the new babies you had mentioned kind of feeding and crying. What do these things mean? Is this normal? It's the difference between surviving and thriving, right? It's yes. like... <laughs> yes, I think that's a great way to yeah. yeah, I think that's a great way to put it. I, I think, I don't know, at, at least to kind of help myself, I always think that, you know, the extra work doesn't necessarily make me a better parent just for, for going the hard way. If I can get help and do something an easier way, I can still be a good parent. I, I need help. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. And for anyone listening who's worried about a recent um, diagnosis of speech delay, I can assure you 
that my eight-year-old now does not stop talking. So um, <laughs> she has done just fine um, after some speech therapy. Oh, I love it. So I guess what would be the most common thing? Would it be a milestone problem, the most common problem you'd find, or would it be something else? In the very young age group, I would say the two most common issues are some sort of growth you know, growth pattern, disturbance, um, or a, a milestone. Um, you know, the, the, you know, the one in a million diagnoses are just that one in a million. Um, they're just not that common, but, um, more often than not, if I have to intervene in some way with a family, it's because of either most commonly poor waking or, um, some kind of milestone abnormality. Okay. So I, I think we've we've hit on a lot of the points about some of the stuff we're looking for, why well child checks are important. If I'm a parent, especially a new parent, what's the best way to prepare for a well child visit that might be coming up? Yeah, I think that's a very good question. Um, I always encourage my parents to write down, or it seems these days, make notes in your phone about as questions as they come up you know, in the interval of time between the, you know, whatever visit, the four months, the six months, six months, nine months, so that you're not scrambling in the moment to remember all the questions that had kind of popped into your head along the way. Um, so because my primary, once I, you know, determine that the child is growing well and developing well, my primary goal in that visit is to help parents with whatever they want to know about their child and how to take care of him or her. Um, so a you know, a list of questions is super helpful. Um, I would encourage parents, I'm trying to think how to say this gently, make your circle of friends or family members who you um, poll for information about your child's health small and specifically chosen. There is an unbelievable amount of bad information out there um, right now, and you can make yourself crazy um, talking to everybody that you do know and even people that you don't know on these huge, you know, citywide moms groups or, you know, parenting 101 on Facebook or whatever it is, um, you, you'll just drive yourself to distraction. And, and the vast, vast majority of people on those platforms have no medical training whatsoever. So talk to your mother talk to your sister, talk to your best friend who has children relatively the same age as you, but don't crowdsource um, yeah. on social media. That will only make you nuts. I, I kind of find that the young parents, especially young mothers, might be some of the most stressed out people that I meet. And uh, not sleeping and caring for another human being, those are important. But I don't think that's the stressful part. I think it's, you know, if you're reading com conflicting mom blogs or yeah. the, these, these friends say one thing, so these say another, am I doing a bad job? Uh, how should people discern what kind of information and, and where to go for information when they have questions it. about yeah, their it's, kids? It's such an accurate observation. Um, I mean, I, I fortunately entered parenthood, just before, you know, the kind of explosion of social media. Um, but I still have, you know, young children at home and, and fall victim to this uh, sometimes myself. The world as presented in social media is false, right? It's a false world. It's just snippets of people's lives. It's, um, it's not accurate. So I would say that your trusted sources of information um, should be one, your pediatrician. I mean, that is what we're here for. That's what we've trained for. Um, and uh, if, if, if you don't feel like you can trust your pediatrician with these kinds of questions or the advice that they're giving, then that's probably a really good signal that you need a different pediatrician. <laughs> yeah. um, and, and then, you know, there, there's some really funny stuff out there that you can find about people have done brilliant articles on, you know, comparing and contrasting all the ridiculous conflicting advice over sleep training or when to yeah. eat solid foods, like all the stuff that people get so riled up about. Um, I think it is really important 
to try and remember that um, the human race survived and thrived for millennia before (laughs) social media came along. So you too can figure out how to raise this baby within your own immediate village and circle of friends. It does not have to include the internet. Yeah. Um, If you've got a roof over your head and clean water, I mean, you're already in what, at least a top quartile, (laughs) you know, you are miles ahead. I think, you know, but it, you know, in all seriousness, at two in the morning, you know, something comes up and you're trying to decide, is it worth it to bother the on-call person? First of all, yeah, that's what we're there for. If you have a serious question, please do not hesitate to give us a call. But I know there are people who are going to go to Google and, um, you know, try and sort things out themselves. So I, I would ask your pediatrician, um, what is their local preferred resource for um, health information, especially like the middle of the night type questions? Um, I, I certainly do not endorse everything that is on the American Academy of Pediatrics website. However, you know, their healthychildren.org is fairly search friendly. If you want to look up what fever should I be concerned about? How much vomiting is too much? You know, like those very basic questions that always tend to come up in the middle of the night. Um, that's a that's a good resource for that information. Um, I really like the educational uh, information that the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia has on their website. So that's another good resource. Um, you don't need a lot. You know, you. It's interesting. One of the the things you you had mentioned was trust. I wonder if you can talk about just that relationship building between the the patients, especially new parents and their pediatrician. How important that is. And you had mentioned, you know, if you don't trust them, this is probably not the pediatrician for you. How how do you form that relationship? What's the best way to do it? Um, I would say like with any relationship, it takes a little bit of time. Um, and so this is a place where there's some tension now in modern medicine, right? But with, between the amount of time we're allowed to spend with our patients, um, and the amount of time that really is required to, to form these kind of intense relationships. Um, but I do try with any of my patients to always, um, encourage them to ask questions. And when I sense resistance or discomfort, to to give them permission to ask the hard questions, um, to challenge me if they don't understand something. Um, But I really do also challenge them to be very specific. Um, It's hard from a physician's standpoint Uh, If someone doesn't want to follow a specific piece of advice and you ask, well, you know, why not? What is your concern? And they say things like, um, I'm just not comfortable with it or um, I haven't had a chance to do my research. That's the one that makes me the most crazy. (laughs) Um, I appreciate that parents want to be well informed. I think that's a sign of a great invested parent. But I think it's also uh, important for most parents to uh, recognize and and accept that physicians um, went to school for years and then did additional training for years after that and then have been in practice for however many years after that. And there is no amount of midnight Google searching that is going to be equal to that degree of research and training. Um, And I want that not to sound pretentious or overbearing, but to be something that they can relax in and have faith in and take some of the pressure off themselves. They don't have to actually figure this all out. That's what we're here for. Um, And so over time, trying to build that sense of, um, you know, I'm here to be your resource. You don't have to be your own individual uh, person alone in this you know, wild ride that is parenting. Well, it's, it's interesting. On the way to the studio today, I had to pick up my car from the shop because it was doing something weird with the RPMs. And of course I Googled it and it's not throwing any codes, but I took it in because I wanted somebody who looks at these cars all day to tell me that I'm not going to break down when I'm on a road trip because I can't do Correct. that. And uh, Correct. Correct. Ho- hopefully that's the kind of relationship you can get with your doctor. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I think another thing that I'll just quickly throw out there, because I know we're running out of time, but, um, you know, in so many of these larger practices now, including the one 
that I, you know, I'm fortunate to work with because I, I really do enjoy all, all my colleagues. But there is a tendency I am finding for scheduling to occur at some um, other central office. And that means that parents really need to speak up if they want to see a specific provider. So it's not just enough to say, oh, I'm seen at the Main Street office. You need to say, I'm seen at the Main Street office and I would prefer to follow with Dr. Whomever. Um, because when a lot of places now, you'll just get put into whatever the first available appointment is. And for a quick visit, that's probably fine. But in terms of developing this trust and developing this relationship with your physician, which I think is so important, um, you need that face-to-face -face time. And, and it's okay to speak up and to say, look, I'd really rather be scheduled with Dr. So-and-so. I love it. You know, Gwyneth, we've kind of, at least I've kind of dodged vaccines thus far. Um, <laughs> we've got about seven minutes left. I think we should talk about it. Chris and I are planning to do shows That's hopefully excellent. down the road and go into individual vaccines, but I don't know. I'm in family medicine. I get so many questions. What what should we know about vaccines? Gosh. Um, well, we could talk for about 12 hours on that, <laughs> as I know you know. Maybe um, specifically, so I guess that was too open-ended. Tell us about your, your dealing with vaccine controversy, seeing patients all the time. How do you deal with that? Yeah. And, and how should patients receive that? Yeah. No, that, that, that's helpful. Um, I think that obviously, you know, vaccine questions are very, very common in my day-to-day -day practice. Um, and as I was alluding to before, um, the more specific parents can be about their questions and concerns, the more I am able to try and address those. So the most common questions that I get about vaccines are, why so many so early? Is it safe for the immune system? Um, why can't we spread them out? There are many other questions, but we'll, we'll just start with those. So, you know, what I think it's important for new parents in general, but especially new parents to understand, because it does seem like a lot of shots for a little baby, um, is that the vaccine schedule is designed to protect children at their most vulnerable against the diseases that are most likely to cause them harm at that age. So, you know, just because of our innate biology and immunity, we are most vulnerable to many of these diseases as infants. And so that is why we immunize them as infants. It's not because we enjoy giving two-month-olds um, two-month-olds shots, but pertussis, for example, whooping cough, um, yeah. is most deadly to young, young infants, certainly under one year of age, but but even, you know, below them, but below, you know, two, four, six months of age. So much so that now we encourage mothers to receive a pertussis booster during their pregnancy because they can provide some passive immunity to their infant in those first few weeks of life before they receive their first pertussis vaccine. Um, but that's the reason we give it at two months is that that's when it's most dangerous to them. And the same holds true for the other um viral and bacterial illnesses that we immunize for in early childhood. It's because that's when kids need the protection from it. Do, do you so have, that's why in general, Oh, go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry. I, I was thinking just along those lines, a question I get sometimes is about the so many question. Can we space them out and do something other than the recommended schedule? What are, what's your thoughts yeah. on that? I, so in general, I discourage it because no matter what you're doing, if you're spreading it out, you are extending the period of time which your child is vulnerable to whatever disease we're talking about. Um, my other concern with um, alternate vaccine schedules is that just like any other system, um, whether it's IT or mechanical or whatever, once there's a system that works, anytime you deviate from that system, your, in, your likelihood of mistakes and overlooks go up. Um, and so the vast majority of times when I have agreed to do alternate vaccine schedules with my families, something gets messed up because they have to be, certain vaccines have to be given at certain intervals to complete the series. 
Some vaccines can't be given together. Um, and it just gets mumble jumbled very quickly. Um, and I also remind parents that that means that's additional visits to a doctor's office, that's additional time in a waiting room where you're potentially exposing your young child to other germs, it's additional co-pays. I will work with families, but I really try to discourage it. What, what do you say? I, I'm sure you've, you've met lots of them. Folks who really don't want to do vaccines for, for whatever reason, how, how can, uh, you know, on the medical side of things, we, I tell folks, we give so many vaccines and just see the benefits in the community yeah. and the lack of side effects that y y you hear to worry about. Um, how, how do you love and care for the people who really don't want to do shots? Yeah. It's, it's really challenging. It's, it's very challenging. Um, and it's where pediatrics and, and family medicine um, run into some interesting ethical issues, right? Because we have not only to respect the, the rights of the parents, of course, but our job is to care for the health of the child. So there, there's two parties at play here. Um, if I have a fan, well, there's... The, the official answer to that question, based on my pace, place of employment right now and the, and the office policy, is that we will work with families who want to do an alternate vaccine schedule, but they must agree to be caught up by the age of two, or we um, ask them to find another practice. Um, on a personal level, I support that policy, even though it hurts my heart on some level to turn those families away. But it goes back to this issue of trust. If you don't think that my um, scientific and medical assessment of the data regarding the importance of the efficacy of the safety of these vaccines is enough to persuade you that they are in the best interest of your child, then there's no reason to think you will trust or believe in my other medical advice either, and it's not going to be a fruitful relationship. Um, you have to believe that your physician has the best interest of your child at heart. Um, and it, in, in my practice, if you elect not to vaccinate at all, you are telling me that you do not think I have the best interest of your child at heart. Um, and I just think that that's, it's, it's not going to be uh, a fruitful relationship for either one of us. And there is a better relationship that you can find elsewhere. Um, yeah. And that's what I would tell them. It has not happened often. You know, when we, when we sit down and have a frank discussion about it, we can usually come to some kind of agreement. Um, but that, that's the bottom line. I think a lot of times patients might overlook that, uh, you know, it, it's easy to think the doctors, they're supposed to push these things, but it's like, you know, especially uh, at, at times, we're just concerned about the child too. I mean, we care about these kids and that's what we're doing. You know, Gwyneth, we could I, go I on for so long, not only about vaccines, but we haven't talked even about adolescent well child checks with the joys and, and struggles there. So if you'd be willing, we'd love to have you back to go into some of the I, I older child stuff? Yeah, I would love to do that because I really do think it's probably an entire episode in and of itself. There's some very specific um, and unique issues to the adolescent population. I think that could be a really great discussion. Well, we'll find another time, and we're so grateful for you to come on. Thank you, Dr. Gwyneth Spader, for coming on Dr. Doctor. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Welcome back to Dr. Doctor, and welcome to this episode's answer to the medical trivia question on vaccines. Yes. The first vaccine ever um, was the smallpox vaccine, and it was actually uh, the cowpox vaccine because smallpox, the human disease, is very similar to a cow disease, <laughs> cowpox, and those pox, those sores, is what they used to vaccinate. This was way back in the 1700s, wow. and uh, smallpox, thank goodness has been eradicated from Earth, so we don't get that vaccine anymore, but it was the first one. And so I know that's been part of our conversation today. People love talking about vaccines right. for many reasons. I'm old enough that I have the round scar on my arm from the smallpox vaccine. They had the little gun, they zapped you with it, and you got a sore, you got a pox, and that's how you know. But you can see people of my age group that uh, have the red scar on their shoulder. That's how you know. Isn't it something? 
Well, Chris, what what are the top three takeaways for this episode? Well, it's hard to pick. I mean, there's a lot of information sort of packed in here, but I think one of them would be sort of, well, baby visits matter. Uh, I mean, that sounds trivial, I know, but but they do. Find things early, uh, fix them early before they become serious. And, you know, I think every parent wants to know, is my baby okay? Is he or she normal? Is he or she doing the stuff they're supposed to do? And instead of turning to Google... How about turning to your primary care physician? Yeah, I I think that would kind of lead into my number two, which is really the relationship. Mm. Uh, we talk about the doctor-patient relationship a lot. You notice that a lot uh, when you're sick, especially as an <laughs> older person. But I notice that an, an awful lot with little babies and young children because it's really a journey. I've I've had eight children, and every single one of them provides. Different things that I haven't lived with and dealt with before. And so you want to have a resource. And every time people go to an urgent care and say, I wish I could have a person that I know and trust and they know my history, that's what these well-child visits do. It helps you build that relationship so you have a place to turn. I often ask patients in my office, do you have a primary care physician that uh, that you trust? And they'll say, yes, and... Maybe, sort of. Yeah. Uh, and that's a problem. And trust takes time and it takes relationship building. And that's that's part of it. So Yeah. Uh, it's fragmented in medicine today. Mm. But I think this is a place where it really can shine. And the people who have that, the patients who do, uh, they benefit. And, you know, lastly, stay tuned if you like these topics and related topics. We're going to do two more episodes uh, where we break up all of the childhood vaccines. We're going to talk about their history and the diseases that they uh, are designed to protect against. And and then don't think when you hear me say that, that we're going to produce a show that is pro or anti-vaccine. It's not that at all. We're going to talk about the vaccines themselves, what they do, what they're intended to do, including some of the controversies around them. Yeah, I I think most of the folks, at least I get to talk to about vaccines, um, some folks already kind of have a a priori decision made up. But most people are just like, what's the buzz about? (laughs) Why why are so many people all fired up? And so hopefully we can get at some of those questions. Absolutely. Well, thank you for listening to yet another episode of Dr. Doctor. You can find this episode and all of our old episodes on our website, drdoctor.org. Click on Episode Archive, and you can search our over 300 episodes by topic or by guest. And we now offer a video version of our podcast. Just click on the YouTube link at the top of our homepage at drdoctor.org. Doctor.org. If you have a question or an idea for an episode topic, we love great ideas, click where it says submit a question and give us your thoughts. I'm Dr. Chris Stroud. And Dr. Andrew Mullally, and we're signing off until your next dose of Dr. Doctor. Have you dreamt of visiting the places where Jesus walked or where the saints made their marks on the world? Trust your trip to the pilgrimage company that more priests, Catholic authors, speakers, and theologians trust. Select International Tours. For 36 years, Select International Tours has provided the very best in pilgrimage travel, including centrally located hotels, the best local Christian guides, and unparalleled access to sacred sites and cultural experiences. SelectInternationalTours.com is the first step on your next pilgrimage.